Welcome to the Glass Lab podcast, where we talk all things product development. It's our goal every month to introduce you to the people, ideas, and development tools that are shaping the hardware products we all use every day. I'm Drew Westrick, your host, VP of Technology here at Glassboard. And uh, today on the show, I've got with me Grant Chapman, our VP of Operations here at Glassboard. I've got Jenny Fisher, the Senior Innovation Guide at Roche, and also Ben Ettinger, who is our uh, Senior Mechanical Engineer here at Glassboard. So welcome, everybody. Um, Jenny, thanks so much for uh, you know agreeing to be on today. Um, happy, to, happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, it's just one of those worlds, those small worlds. I've been glad you were able to connect and bring everyone together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm super curious on the job title because I think that's the most fascinating part I've heard so far. Can you explain what that is, an innovation guide? Because yeah. me being technical takes it one way, and I'm sure I'm completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, sure. So we introduced the role of innovation guide uh, about three years ago now. And two years ago, maybe. Uh, really, the so our innovation team is really lean, and that was intentional with the the mindset of innovation isn't one department's role, but it's everyone's role to contribute to innovation. So, as an innovation guide, my role is to help inspire and drive internal bottom up innovation as it aligns with our overall strategy. Um, what this looks like involves kind of wearing many hats, but we work closely with our internal stakeholders to kind of create the innovation strategy. And from there, we uh, roll out different uh, workshops, host internal challenges, have different uh, forums, kind of trigger, inspire that innovation. And then once we have internal ideas, we connect them with the appropriate tools to further advance those ideas. So I had somebody um, from an organization say, so you're kind of like an internal Sherpa. And so I'm really trying to get my title changed to Innovation Sherpa. So I think that's a lot cooler than so cool. Innovation uh, Guide is not esoteric enough. Yeah. Sherpa. Yes. Yeah. Fun fact, one of my favorite uh, things is a Sherpa, you know, like in the wintertime, like those, like, you know, uh, like pullover, like real fluffy things. So I think I could totally buy into that if only <laughs> if I was allowed to wear that exclusively to work then. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that, that's it. Um, it's a pretty... Um, fluid role. I get to partake in a lot of things. I've really gotten to shape it along the way since I'm one of the first people to be in this role at my company. Neat. And I'm, I'm kind of curious. So when, when you say innovation guide is, is that limited like to like product innovation, uh, process innovation is, or is it pretty much just, you know, innovation really, uh, like company wide is, is there, I guess like some guardrails put on that or is it, is it sort of open? Yeah, I would say it's mostly about, feeding our pipeline, so mm -hmm. product. However, uh, with that can come some, say, process innovation as we've introduced new methodologies like lean innovation, um, at just as one, you know, running design thinking workshops, anything that we think might be a trigger for creativity or ideas or something that could help us flesh out an idea. Um, I would consider that more innovation that benefits us internally, but isn't an output to our customers. Gotcha. Neat. And the biggest question I've got is you're, I keep hear these like innovation workshops and things like that. Are those starting with a prompt that is a problem your company's trying to solve and already has identified that, hey, we want a new market or product in this market, or this is the problem we're trying to solve. We just don't know how or what to do about it. Or is this truly like, 
blue sky, hey, in the room, raise your hand if you've got like a medical problem you'd like to see fixed. And like, how could we all come up with like, how open-ended are these workshops? And like, because our clients at Glassboard always come to us with either the problem defined or an idea of how they want to solve it. So we get what I'd say a little bit later in the process is where we pick it up. So I'd love to hear how you guys start at ground zero. Yeah. So uh, I think first and foremost, I work in our diabetes care division at Roche. So that's our, I'll say our scope, if you will. Uh, we have a great um, internal strategic insights team that has created uh, just a bunch of artifacts or tools that we use that are representative of our customers. This can be people with diabetes, healthcare providers, um, payers, and this information kind of serves as initial fuel to inspire, say, a workshop. Um, maybe we'll we'll step back and start a little bigger and say, hey, can we focus on this particular diabetes comorbidity? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one way we approach it. So it is kind of defined by the space. We also, being that I sit in R&D, we'll have people come forward with ideas that are maybe more technically focused. So say they work in a certain department and you know they're really versed in a certain technology or a methodology or you know just have something they want to explore. We also nurture that as well, recognizing that maybe it doesn't initially align to a customer need, but it could be an enabling technology that will be important down the road. Very cool, very cool. And who would be those initial stakeholders in like the early conversations? Is that marketing, user research? Is it primarily engineers or what's the makeup of those conversations? Yeah, I would say it depends. We work very closely with our internal marketing um, colleagues to help kind of shape out that initial strategy. And then from there, um, depending on what type of idea we're talking about, is it something where it's more of a concept and we're, we're starting to define not only a, a potential solution, but a business model around that. That would definitely involve more of a, a commercial uh, collaboration. Yeah. But if we are talking about those really early tech ideas, then the stakeholders are normally our internal R&D leadership team. Okay. As they're the ones that are kind of also driving the budget to fund these opportunities. Right. No, that's, and that's cool. And that's what the next thing I was going to ask is, so you got this great idea, you host a workshop and you have five ways to approach it. How do you guys decide which one to follow, like to, to chase and to, to tackle? And how do you acquire funding within the business to do that, to follow on, not just the funding in, in like dollars, but in the human capital, right? So Jim is on the team that had this great idea, but he's also working on other program. Does he get to be involved in this development? How do you blend that into what I'll call his day job, right? If he's working on another program that's inactive development, how do you guys you know deal with that split role? Yeah, that's a good question, and that's when we shaped the our innovation team as it is now. That was a, one of the big questions that we had to answer because it's something that comes up often. So I would say we've um, we formatted our budgeting so that Jim can work on this project right. um, now. In terms of the the time and allocation, that's that's where it gets. Either Jim or Jim's manager gives kind of input to say, hey, Jim can do this. Um, still working on it, but right. that's something that we've worked to, to that that mindset of, hey, everyone contributes to innovation. And especially if it's somebody that it was their idea, we want them to be a part of it. And the organization, I say the organization, the people leaders, they're supportive of that. Obviously, if Jim, using Jim here, yeah. uh, if he's working on something really mission critical, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, then there might be some kind of balancing act there, but 
the overall, I would say, support is given for those individuals to participate in innovation as they'd like to. No, that's, that's super cool. I think that's one of the things we fight with or struggle with or like deal with the Glassport as well is we very rarely have clients that will come in and want an entire engineer's worth of time in one discipline on their program. So we've got guys that are split between two programs or maybe between three smaller ones. And, you know, how do you balance that clutch in, clutch out and who's doing what, when? And I think that's the one of the bigger challenges of what we do as, as engineers, Ben, right, is like how do you determine when to work on what in a way that's efficient because that, that clutch in and clutch out is the worst part of what we do, I think, right? I would yeah. love nothing more than to be able to focus on this thing this week, this thing the next week, but the world doesn't work that way. So I think that's right. curious to see how, how you guys tackle that from, you know, we're a super tiny team versus you guys are a very large corporation that does lots of process and lots of things. And I'd love to see how you approach it because either one of us might have good points that the other one has never had visibility into. And I think that also shows sort of like the value of, of, prioritizing and like focusing on innovation and actually like putting people in that role. Right. Cause I think a lot of people think, Oh, like innovation is just this purely organic thing, right. Where it just sort of like percolates up in an organization and, and magically, you know, becomes the next generation of, of products. And while I, I do think you, it's difficult to just, ma- you know, manufacture blind innovation, I do think you can definitely like foster it. Right. And so that's even something like at Glassboard we've toyed with over the years on different like projects or supporting things that maybe even isn't necessarily for a specific client's program or project, but just even like internal tools too. Right. And I think that's kind of neat that you sit in this role within the organization and that, uh, you know, your organization is actually prioritizing the ability to like let people innovate and say this actually is important, right? And like, you know, again, to take your example, even if Jim is working on something important for the products of today, that you're also prioritizing some of that time for the products of like tomorrow and and creating space for that innovation like to exist, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you, uh, you touched on, you made me think of something. I like to look at innovation as, you know, when you think of health, you know, we have our balanced diet, if you will, and we don't eat dessert all the time, but you need to have dessert. You know, you need to have those, those treats and those rewards and innovation. I look at as, as health, you know, you need to maybe take a break from your, your day-to-day job and get to work on something cool. You also mentioned uh, the value that it can add to an organization as you could be, it could serve as a continuing education opportunity for an employee Mm -hmm. to get to try something new, to flex a different muscle. Yeah. I almost think of it sometimes as like exploration, right? And I think even if you think back to, uh, you know, like even like I think like to childhood, for instance, right? I know we talked at the beginning of the show about, you know, raising kids and and all that. But it's – I look in a way it's like sometimes I feel like once you've been within an organization for so long, it's just, you know, kind of a a rinse, repeat type thing where it's like, okay, come in, you know, do my role. Uh, You know, there's always – the to-do list is always getting longer and longer. But I think it's really cool uh, when – you value innovation and then you approach somebody and say, Hey, we're going to pull you into this workshop. We're going to let you think creatively and kind of explore some different ideas. And then even outside of that, we're actually going to give you some time uh, to, to just work on those things and maybe nothing comes of it. Right. And I think you can't look at that as like a failure, a negative that like, you, you know, innovation didn't happen at this exact juncture because sometimes all it takes is letting people explore and be creative and, and, you know, kind of get outside of their, what I'll call like normal daily grind or bubble, uh, to, to maybe have some ideas that, that can then start to, to take place. Right. And sometimes it could even help stuff that they're working on today. And maybe it's not even this huge aha moment, but it's just enough to be, you know, feel kind of reinvigorated about what they are working on. 
Yeah, absolutely. I th- it's always fun when people, I, I'm a big fan of biomimicry, you know, getting to learn, connect the dots from other experiences or other yeah. industries. And, and it is cool when people have those aha moments. And to your point of people that have maybe worked at the company for a really long time, it has been one thing that's been really rewarding in this role are those people that they'll reach out afterwards and they're like, you've just really reinvigorated me. Like I feel inspired. You know, that was right. so fun. And to me, that's a, that's a win right there. No, absolutely. That's awesome. That reminds me. Um, have you seen the movie General Magic by chance? No. You should watch it. It's okay. my favorite like innovation movie. It's about the guys that like invented the smartphone before the smartphone. And, okay. Like how it flopped, but all those people that are part of the team are now the CEOs of these major tech companies, and every one on the team was that A caliber, and they had all these A ideas, but the tech just wasn't there yet. And I think it's one of those things where the failure actually led to a bunch more successes than that one success would have been. And that's what just spurred that memory. And also for anyone watching, General it's Magic, wonderful. if you're an engineer, development, new product, yeah, just watch it. check it out. Thank you. It is inspiring. Mm-hmm. 10 out of 10 on Nerd Rotten Tomatoes, right? Oh, yeah. Nerd Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> 10 out of 10. And like, at least three serotonin molecules will be made in your brain. <laughs> nice. it's, it's, it's the good feels. Um, but no, I think that's the, the cool part about development. And Ben, you and I run through this all the time, with the fight between like organic or constructed development of how to solve a problem. I think you and I fight like constructively on like, how are we going to approach this problem that we have? And it sounds like you guys just make time for it to be organic, which is like you structure time and then light the fuse and run away and see what happens, which is really neat. Yeah. And that structure piece is something that your guys' gym analogy reminded me of, mm-hmm. which is just kind of the way that we think about constraints. I know part of your role is developing strategies for like early ideation. And I think sometimes if you just get people in a room and it's totally blue skies and no rails, right, then kind of the human nature is to take the path of least resistance to the solution. And I think one of the things that, at least for us, drives a lot of that creativity are the constraints. You know, if you just say, design me this widget, okay, that's one thing. But then if you say, you know, design me this widget that has to cost this much when it's done and you only have this much money to develop it, and oh, by the way, it needs to be tailored to these types of people, suddenly we look at each other and go, oh man, we have to get creative to, to do that, right? Right. Uh, what are... What are things like that that you've identified for early ideation strategies? I mean, in terms of constraint? Any, any or, I guess constraints do, is kind of what we do internally. Do you? Right. And that's, that's, that's actually the question is like, how much and, and how do you give these guys rails? Yeah. There's definitely constraints. Um, normally, time, you touched on that. You know, we're sticking with Jim here. But if Jim <laughs> only has so much time, that's obviously a constraint. Um, budget is a constraint. We've When we're talking about these technical innovations, we've moved more to the model or emphasizing, you know, do a little, do something, show some evidence, get more funding, the, advancing the, that the way. The continual unlock method, right? Yes. Like get to the thing you told me you're going to get to, or maybe three steps behind it, but I'll tell you you have to get all the way there, and then we'll decide if you get the next round right. of funding or not, right? Yeah. And then also we've, I've mentioned collaborating with our commercial stakeholders. We also um, have rolled out the lean innovation methodology, which heavily relies on the lean business canvas. And so that is a great tool right there to identify uh, what could be constraints, either you know market size, channels, all those kind of key components. But that brings a little more of the commercial uh, constraints to it. But we're we definitely want to work as a team because these also these tools, the Lean Business Canvas, is kind of internal constraining. Um, they're all set up to align with our internal end-to-end process. Mm-hmm. Neat. That's super cool. I know we've talked a lot about uh, sort of like the mechanics of the innovation, but I guess just industry-wide right now, I mean, what do you see as being uh, like where most of the innovation is is happening, at least right now? Yeah, good question. So I think uh, 
I think we all know COVID shaped up, you know, shaking up everything. Sure. Um, yeah. But especially in the healthcare space, we're seeing, you know, you might see peop- companies that are coming in that weren't there five or 10 years ago, uh, maybe looking at like Google or Amazon. Um, and also you're seeing a lot of partnerships emerge. Um, especially if you're talking about a space like diabetes, there's so so many complexities to diabetes surrounding comorbidities. Uh, for one company to do it all, um, they could. You know, maybe large companies can do it all, but it's kind of silly when you look at companies that are already developing expertises in certain areas, bigger companies or even startups that are emerging. What's going on in academia? Yeah. So when you talk about comorbidities, are you talking really about like holistic care then, you know, like not just treating, I guess, diabetes specifically, but maybe all the things that that play into that in terms of uh, maybe it's, you know, diet or weight or other like factors that can either make diabetes like better or worse. Is that that what you're talking about? I guess. Okay. Got it. More than, yeah, that holistic care. Yeah. Anything under the, you know, could be like a chronic health condition. Right. Right. See, and I, I think that's, at least like I, I don't have diabetes, but at least, uh, you know, from a healthcare perspective, I do find some of the things that are interesting, you know, stuff like, uh, you know, the, the, the fitness trackers, the watches, you know, even like with like Apple and Google now having, you know, health apps where you can kind of like pull together maybe a, a bunch of different data, or even as like a, uh, a patient, like looking at your healthcare metrics, like more often or being like more aware sort of holistically of like where you're at, you know, again, sometimes it'll tell you, you know, you're estimated maybe like VO2 max, right? And, you know, as somebody that's maybe like not an athlete, you're like, well, why would that matter? But then the more you kind of read up on that and realize like, oh, that, you know, kind of tells you a little bit about your cardiovascular health. Again, I feel like the more you can educate people about their health and maybe some of those like metrics and sort of like where they're at holistically from a a healthcare standpoint, uh, the more they can kind of work on all of those things, right? So I, I'm sure you guys are playing in that space, but it just seems like there's lots of connecting, connectedness and apps and even like patient data now that maybe only your doctor would know or see that. But now, you know, you can be more cognizant of that. Like, I think one of the neatest things, like when I get like blood work now is, you know, I get an email from my doctor that sort of like shows me all the stats and whether or not they're like in a good or a bad range. And I mean, I'm an engineer, so I'm like a nerd and I really like data, (laughs) but, but even I think for an average patient, I think being able to like see that and go back and access that sort of like whenever you want is sort of powerful. Cause I feel like normally it would just have been, you order blood work, your doctor says, oh yeah, most of your levels look good. Or you have these three or four levels that maybe don't look so good. And three weeks later, you kind of just like forget about it and being able to like go back and reaccess that data or sort of see how those numbers are changing over time. Those are all things that I'm just thinking of. Uh, it's just really kind of neat and being enabled it, it really a pretty like rapid pace right now. I feel like like industry wide. Yeah, I agree. I think one, the thing that excites me the most is that personalization that you kind of touched mm-hmm. upon. Um, and you know, when we look at medicine in general and the models, the kind of traditional models, most of them being shaped around, uh, male, we see new companies coming out looking at, Hey, what about females? We're 50% of the population. Yeah, um, but then also just in general, what if I don't fit into one of those models? Right. Um, when we, when we're talking about any space, um, we all have unique complexities that we deal with. And so for someone to have that data to find what's right for them, either in managing a condition or just their general lifestyle, um, that's pretty empowering. 
And I also, being a, a new mom, I get excited about kids now being raised with this technology. You know, I hope it really does just become the norm that what's ahaing us now is, oh, I can have all this data on my wrist. They're just like, yeah, that's how it's always been. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it's going to lead to healthier generations. Yeah. And I, I love the gamification, right? Like the, I'm an engineer. I love numbers and math and things like that. But the like red, yellow, green, or like frowny face, smiley face scale on like your numbers is amazing for people that don't do numbers well, right? Yeah. Even people that don't do graphs well, just where am I, good, bad, you know, where's my Caesar thumb uh, that we always say in engineering, is it good or bad? But like just having a gut feel of like, oh, I'm actually really bad or I'm really good here. That's great. And yeah. like getting that reward for like, if you change one of your numbers, then my dad was finding cholesterol for a long time. And like, he got pretty gamification into the like, what aspects of my life give me the biggest bang for my buck? Yeah. Right? Can I eat that piece of red meat if I also go like ride my bike to do this <laughs> yeah. thing? Um, yeah, I think the, the trend that I'm seeing from a patient perspective is this unwillingness to accept like a one size fits all oh, model, yeah. right? Like we, I think that a statistic I had read was in the next three years, humanity will come up with an, more data than we had in the 30 years previous. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the problem will not be like access to data, or it won't be the data itself, yeah. maybe access to it. Or the right filter. Uh, the, the way to parse it, right? And I had a similar experience, Drew, you're talking about blood work, where I had a, a blood panel done, and I basically just got the very generic, like, oh, you may want to try a Mediterranean diet to get these things. And I was like, Hey doc, no, I want to know the number. Like, give me the sheet. Like, I, there, there's an app somewhere that I can parse this data with and, and make heads or tails of it. So yeah. I see that trend where it's you know personalized care and you know, wanting a tailored solution for the individual. Specifics, even I think to diabetes. I mean, I've seen there's like a lot of um, the the measurement tools are becoming more like automated, right? Where instead of pricking your finger and taking a measurement, you know, several times a day, uh, you know, you can, you can wear a sensor, it's, it's wireless, so you can tap on it with your phone, things like that. Um, I mean, obviously that that's happening now. I'm, I'm assuming you're going to continue to see that sort of innovations continue to accelerate, I would imagine, right? Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that's really cool about the uh, diabetes, I'll say community, you might've heard of the, the tagline, we are not waiting. Um, a group of people with type 1 diabetes or parents of children with type 1 diabetes created this internal DIY movement have actually inspired a lot of innovation that we're seeing in the diabetes arena. So I hope that that DIY movement within diabetes also kind of inspires other industries as well in terms of what could be in terms of health innovation. That's neat. Like, can you just give us an example of like maybe something that they've come up with uh, that, that you feel like is like you know, moving the needle, at least for companies that exist in that space? Yeah, you might have heard of the um, uh, automated insulin delivery, or some people um, might refer to it as the um, artificial pancreas. Mm -hmm. uh, that was something that was kind of put together by this group of people. They, um, one of the pioneers, he came from the control systems industry, I think working in oil. And he was like, you know, we can connect these huge oil refineries all around the world. I can see all of this data from across the world right here on my screen, but I can't see the data coming in from my son's insulin pump or mm -hmm, his CGM. Right. Um, so doing pioneer work in there and bringing that data together, how do we get those devices to potentially talk to ultimately bring true relief to patients to not have to, to think about their diabetes? Um, I saw something just last week. I think the average person with diabetes spends on average person with diabetes on insulin spends one to two hours a day having to think and manage their wow. diabetes. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, a lot all of time. Up, it's all two to five minutes at a time. 
but that adds up throughout a whole day. Right. And that's day after day, week after week, right? Exactly. And even the, maybe the subconscious burden of, um, oh shoot, did I do that two to five minutes ago? Right. And uh, or, what did or, I do at 8 a.m.? Should I eat that? Or is right. that going to cause me a problem, right? That subconscious of like always having to monitor that yeah, where for absolutely. the rest of us, we take for granted that. Right. That's my right. wife calls it the the mental load, right? Yep. It's a big term that yes. they use, especially well with mothers, right? It's just this like constant like thinking about the next thing is the laundry done, like all of that. I think that can apply though really yeah. uh, even to like like patients, right? And just constantly having that mental load of, you know, where, where am I at? When is my next meal? You know, where's my insulin level now? You know, where's it going to be in an hour depending upon what I eat or drink or what I do or don't do, right? Right. So again, I, I think there'd be... I would love to see yeah, more, like you said, uh, community-based things, uh, like like predictive things, uh, just, just even like the ability for people to sort of like share their experiences. Because again, I think when you look at individualized care, I think it's always a question too of like, well, if what I'm doing is working may not always work for everybody, but other people I think can have value when they sort of see what other people are doing uh, and, and it's working or not working and, and just being able to share that, right? I mean, I know that with healthcare data, you have to be careful, right? I mean, there's laws that govern a lot of this, but at the same time, I do think there's some value, at least holistically, in being able to, you know, say whether uh, this, you know, specific uh, action, right, is is helping or hurting or, you know, what direction it's going, right? Yeah, absolutely. You, I think the, the connectedness, the community you mentioned, that's... Uh, it's so much more than even just say medical advice, but just feeling like you're not alone, mm -hmm. um, especially if maybe you're the only person in your family or your immediate friend group that might have diabetes or any condition for that matter. Um, and that same article that I just referenced, I think it mentioned um, over 90% of people will get their uh, diabetes advice from community. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so just to put that value to that there. Yeah. No, and I think that one of the things for me is like a product development engineer that makes a huge ring there for me is like, I need a data set because I don't have diabetes. So I have no idea what the pain point is or what the, the small anecdotal detail is that would spring the, oh, that's what's a pain? Oh, that's a problem we can solve. But if I yeah. didn't experience that, it's really hard to come up with the fix. Yeah. Um, and Ben, you and I have been on a number of programs where we aren't the intended customer of a product. And it's really hard for us to like, you have to put yourself in their shoes, but if you don't have enough data to draw self, yourself a pair of shoes to slip on, right. you're trying to solve a problem that you don't know why it hurts, right? Yeah. And that's the, the important part in like any product development story is the voice of that customer has to be loud. It has to be accurate. Oh, yeah. And you want the weird cases. You want that corner case to be heard because it might spark something that everyone else just takes for granted. Yeah, that's what sucks about it, but we don't need to complain about that. Yeah. I want this other part fixed, but that part might be the easy one to fix, right? The low-hanging fruit. Totally. I feel like that's the the soft side of what we do that makes what we do so much different than a traditional nuts and bolts engineer, right? It's like we have to be able to solve the technical problem, but we have to be able to identify the human problem, right? Yeah. You have to crack the nut of like, and, what do you feel? Right. And I think that's somewhat non-traditional for an engineering path. And I feel like you deal with that a lot as well. Did you anticipate getting into that realm? Did you, when you were studying... Uh, engineering? Did you think you were going to a more technical nuts and bolts path and this just happened about? And, or? And maybe give us just a quick brief of, of your background, right? Um, I oh, don't think yeah, Grant sure. and I know and as well as the listeners, yeah. but yeah, that yeah, might help. Yeah, sure. So I went to school for biomedical engineering. Uh, to your question, Ben, why biomedical engineering? Initially, I was really interested in prosthetics, um, but I think there was always that underlying human component to it, or I'll just say creature component because I was really into animal prosthetics. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did have a professor. She mentioned that a lot of 
BME students uh, tend to have that more um, altruistic, or that's kind of why they get into BME and not wanting to help others. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then my path to Roche came about when I got an internship opportunity, not in prosthetics, but hey, Roche is a good company. I'll, Mm -hmm. I'll check it out. And then here I am, you know, X amount of years later. So it just kind of, um, I still have that interest, but I'm not working in it now. But I think to the question, um, the underlying focus on people is mm-hmm. still there. I I never saw myself really getting into the pure, just technical nuts and bolts. So I, when I came to Roche, I came in through our requirements engineering, which is more about that initial, you know, elicitation analysis of the the business and then the technical requirements and how do we feed those into more of the specifications down mm-hmm. down the road. So there was always that more, um, I'll say, soft skill side to it. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, now then getting here as an innovation guide and getting to connect people with those opportunities to talk to our customers, that kind of all just, I'll say, fell into place naturally. That's, yeah. super That's cool. a great story. That's awesome. Yeah. And that is something that we, going back to when you asked what do I do? Um, one thing, you know, so my cust- customer in part is the R&D organization. And we hear that all the time. Like, we want to get in front of customers. So we've um, organized, in addition to our workshops, we've put, we've put together kind of these different, um, we call it the Innovation Impulse. It's a suite of offerings that aim to kind of inspire, educate, trigger innovation. And one thing we have is called uh, EMC Squared, Engineer Meets Customer and Customer Care. And this is really just a day where our employees can come and they can meet people that fall under those, the customer, or when we say customer care, it could be an HCP. But to your point, there really is something so special about getting to sit down and talk to somebody face to face and hear about whatever their little quirk is, or even just to hear it. And then you're like, okay, the research I just read right. is yeah. true. Well, this or, is validating. Yeah. the thing that I've been working on does solve a problem that someone really has. Right. Like, and this is where it will make their life better, which makes all, all yeah. rewarding, right? We ha- in our, our last one we did um, two years ago, COVID's kind of put a, a damper in wanting to have this face-to-face event, but we heard from a diabetes nurse educator that she's so busy every day that if a solution is too difficult to train, a patient on, she won't put it in front of the patient. And that was pretty aha for a group of engineers when we're thinking about features yeah. to add or or even from a user experience perspective. Um, it all kind of ties together. I mean, she just told us that yeah, could be the greatest thing in the world, but if it's too hard to train somebody on in this 10 minutes I have with them, sorry, I'm going to the next thing. Right. And I think that's so important to like have engineers be able to experience uh, like how a customer interacts with the product and actually like see that. Cause again, I think we can kind of get lost in this world of at least I think of it this way that like most engineers work on things. Right. And then there's a whole class of people that sort of like work and design things for people, but it's like, it's really important I think to like bridge that, that divide. Right. Cause again, I mean, even from a, an educational background, it's like, uh, a lot of what you do in college and beyond, right? A lot of it is the is the math, the things. Like, again, it's it's all focused on the engineering that is very, like, thing-oriented. Um, but the thing about engineering is, you know, for the most part, the things that you are designing are going to be interacted with by people, right? right. And I think sometimes we can sort of, like, lose sight of that. Um, and, again, I think 
in, in, in some contexts it makes sense, right? But like people tend to like hide the engineers in the back of the building, <laughs> right? But sometimes you got to like get them out in the world and get them in front of customers and, and get that exposure to how people are actually going to interact with the end product. Cause I know that at least in the instances where I have been able to do that, uh, the more I see people use the product or understand how they, uh, interact with it, the more you start to think about that when you actually are thinking about engineering the product, right? So right. I really do think that's an important feedback loop that sometimes maybe gets missed. And maybe not just missed, but it gets hidden behind layers, right? Like maybe there's a, you know, a customer service uh, person that relays something to the project manager and the project manager, you know, relays it on to the engineering manager. And by the time it gets all the way back to the engineer, maybe you've kind of lost what the, you know, what the end customer's actual pain point or issue was. Uh, and, and, and maybe the solution doesn't, you know, really get solved. Right. There's so the much problem really nuance there. Right. Yeah. Like the telephone game doesn't work. Right. right. Yeah. And I, I, I was in a training last week through uh, lead stack. So in a, within my role as an innovation guide, I'm a lean innovation coach in our organization. And we were talking about, um, when we talk about pain points, also kind of customer needs. And so there's these functional needs, and there's also emotional needs. And I think getting to talk to customers, you're going to get a, more of those emotional needs than are articulated, say, in a requirements document. Right. Yep. I think a common theme on this podcast we talk about is the tools of product development, right? And so we'll, we talk literal equipment, CNC machines, 3D printers. We'll talk kind of the more intellectual pursuit. How do you parse the simulation results? But one thing we haven't really touched on yet in the podcast is that emotional intelligence piece, which is so critical to your point, Drew. I mean, they're, most products are the end user is a human, right? And it's going to be interacted with on some level and how it's interacted with kind of dictates its functionality. For sure, yep. And exactly, like, like you said, even if the innovation exists or the, the, the product can do... Uh, what is is best, for instance, for a patient, but the patient can't get it to do that thing or they can't interact with it in a way or even aren't even trained to use the tool in that way, then does it even matter that that, that item can do whatever it is that can do, right? If, if, it's, if it actually can't be uh, unlocked or done by the end user or the end user can be trained to do it, then it's almost like it doesn't exist, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, oh, sorry to interrupt no, you. You, there. Go first. Um, you made me think, um, though, you know, when we talk about how COVID has shaken up different industries, I think it's brought a lot of attention to the topic of health equity. And so we could design really cool solutions, but if people can't afford them or they can't access them, um, that's a problem. Yep. And so that's something else that uh, we've been looking at at Roche is you know, how do we use our position as a large company, not only in the globe, but in the communities that we have locations in, like Indianapolis here, to create these programs to help get access to our solutions, to help people get educated on them. Uh, so that's something that's really inspiring. And it, it's cool to see different companies giving the focus to this very important topic. Because um, when we also talk about our customers, it's, yeah, it's great to get to sit down with one person and learn from them. Um, but they're one in how many of unique seas of people that we might not get the opportunity to talk to. Right. No, and it's it's always hard to justify the, well, we interviewed 10 people and eight of them said this, but two of them said this other thing. How, you know, what data set is enough and how do you how do you parse that and read that is always the challenge, right? You know, will all the clients feel this way or just the ones we interviewed happen to feel that way this time? Right. Do you have any like boots on the ground strategy for how you would tackle that problem up front? Like, we want a representative sample of who this end user might be. That very first step of identifying who 
do you guys have a, a kind of boots on the ground strategy for it? Yeah. So I think it depends when we're talking about our more like strategic insights research, you know, th there are very thorough upfront like screen screeners that are created to ensure we're getting a sample that represents the population that we want to go after. When we're talking about like an innovation event, um, we, like our last one we had, we partnered with the JDRF, which is a Juvenile Diabetes and Research Foundation. We reached out to them. They sent a call asking for volunteers to come. And so for that one, it was more, we kind of had an idea of who might come based on their audience. Right. Uh, but, the, you know, that one's just, I'll say, is more for the fun exercise. So I think it depends on the intent of what we want that research for. But I, I did recently learn if you have a good, if one, so if you get um, a good sample size and you have a good qualitative researcher, you should be able, it's information should start becoming repetitive after five people. Got it. Interesting. That's a great number to know. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it's kind of nice that it's pretty low, right? Yeah. Just probably guess you have a good researcher. So yeah. we'll, we'll see how that turns out for us, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, we've talked about, you know, the customer and how, how hard it is to parse their data. And one of the things I'm dying to find out because we're a hardware podcast and I'm a hardware guy is, so you have an idea and you guys intern like, okay, yeah, this is cool. What tools do you guys use internally to try Right, like what? What do you guys have in your business to allow people to play and prototype or test or or, or go from there? Or do you have a team that you feed the idea to them and then they prototype it and bring it back to the guy that had the idea? Like, how does that whole what's like maker side of it work? Right, where people have to make a physical good. Yeah, good question. So I think it, it kind of depends on the idea, but I would say within our different teams, say if we're talking about chemistry, if we're talking about mechanical engineering, they all have their respective tools. You know, mechanical engineering, they might have a 3D printer. In chemistry, they might have a mass spectrometer. Yeah, mass spectrometer. Um, so depending on whatever tools they kind of have internally, they might drive that. But we do also work with external partners for certain types of prototyping, depending on what the idea might be. Yep, very cool. Yeah, I was just curious, you know, how much you guys in the innovation suite, like in your direct department, like had this tool that you loaned out for quick prototype or things like that to a, a team that needed, or if you just borrowed what was already in the business, or did you go outside, right? Because I've there's so many different ways to skin that. Yeah, right? absolutely, and um, I think. One thing that we've also been trying to introduce with some of our, say, looking at the lean methodology, but what is the um, the most amount of evidence you can collect without having to build something out? Got so it. for some of those things we talked about, um, you know, if, if say we're talking about the the ME team and they already have this tool, like they, it might just be easy for them to go in the lab and whip something up, if right. you will. Um, but if we're talking about something where it's really expensive, it's like, okay, well, maybe we can take a step back and look at, what information do we already have access to? Are there publications? But what kind of evidence can we first say, hey, there's a signal here that we should spend X amount of dollars right. to get to build something out? Because I, I, That follows up the exact next question I had, which is, okay, so you do things where they unlock money as they go and you try and gather evidence really, really early. What are your phase gates? What do these look like? You know, from a high level, is there like an, you know, initial idea, alpha, beta, release, where you're, you know, initial idea that's just on paper, you know, here's a research paper, here's an idea, we think this has got merit, we vote on it, yes, we fund that one. The alpha phase is, okay, we need a looks like prototype-ish that might have like one of the functions it needs, and beta is like, it's going to be a fully fleshed out, you know, working device, even though it might not be manufacturable, things like that. What are your gates and phases, and how do you guys navigate that? Yeah, Good question. So I would say when we're talking about something that we've identified as a solution that we're really going to explore, flesh out, commercialize, we have an, an intent process that has its own set of deliverables. 
that are mostly, I'll say, more commercial pieces, but do follow some kind of technical readiness level. And then pre that in our early innovation, we heavily rely on technical readiness levels to kind of guide but the um, what's next or what do we spend on. But I would also say there's that element of what ideas, if there's something that we can initially immediately see, hey, this aligns with our organizational strategy, it could feed into a, a current platform or a current product, maybe that you know, that's going to get streamed faster. Yeah, um, right, right into let's engineer it, make it work. Right. We know it meets the need that we have. Exactly. Right. If we're talking about something where it's like, okay, we're getting some signals, um, but it's still pretty exploratory, uh, then it kind of depends. Yeah. I'll say. And so it sounds like it's a huge amount of analog variableness, right? Like you can go full throttle on something or baby steps at a time. And my next question is, and I won't ask like number quantification for dollars, but how much time do you guys spend between, you know, next approval, next approval? Is this like a quick, you know, six, eight week thing? Or is this like in six months, we'll come back with enough data to get to the next phase? You know, how much time is there between your gates um, and your innovation stuff in, internally, right? Because I think there is yeah. the that split log of either really, really fast, but then do you have enough time to truly flesh it out before you get to your next gate? Or too long, do you go too far down a rabbit hole that wasn't worth going down, right? So how do you guys draw that line? Yeah, I think we're still learning uh, that so one we. there. Um, <laughs> we're, you know, we've put in different pro programs into place to make things go faster. I'll say on the business model validation side, on the technical side, there's just a lot of factors there. Um, going back to Jim, what's Jim working on? What what are you know budget constraints that we'll have into place? Uh, but still exploring kind of a a true model that we could make our own to get that speed. Yeah, no, and it's it's tough. I think that balance between like when you call a prototype good enough is right. really tough. But for like, all right, yes, this is it. Let's really engineer it now, not quit prototyping and let's go for it. Yeah, well, I think that's uh, the comment of how much evidence can you get before you build something is interesting because I think with physical product development, a lot of our ethos is build early, build often. Uh, but we've mentioned the pandemic a couple of times, and that has shaken things up a little bit. We've working on a medical device this past year that was a digital physical product where you know it's at home trials now because of the pandemic and we're looking at different ways to prototype and get validation and one of the things we did was a web-based prototype for some user feedback early and often that's something we probably wouldn't have thought to do before the pandemic but something that will stick going forward and it was a way to get you know, 90% of the data we would have with 20% of the effort, right? I, I wouldn't say 20, it was far less. <laughs> yeah, but it was one of those things where you, you don't have to ship your physical product, just, hey, does this user interface meet your needs? Does this look nice? Do you like the way this text reads? Do you like the options the user gets? And then you both get our stakeholder, like our client goes through it and gets his stuff, but he can then very easily send that to his potential customers and say, is this visually appealing and get that warm fuzzies on it, not even from the technical or does it meet the need? Right. Which is huge. Have you all experienced anything through the pandemic like that that's like, oh, we would never have done that, but it's going to stick going forward? Yeah, I know in our um, human factors team, they've had a lot of, I'll say, process innovation, um, recognizing like, hey, maybe we don't need to fly to a, a study site and do certain things. We can do it digitally like that. Right. Uh, and then also we have to have taken advantage of some of these digital tools where you can meet people, I'll say meet people in the wild. Um, one thing that's nice about it is you could, you know, it's not just people in your own backyard or wherever your research right. facility is, but it could be people across the globe. Um, and then I also, I really think there's something underappreciated about that element of somebody getting to be in their own comfort zone, giving you that feedback, you know, maybe right. not getting stressed out about getting stuck in traffic, 
you know, coming, I'm in the strange place. Um, you know, they're sitting at home getting to give you that feedback and, you know, is there something there? I don't know, but I'd like to think there is. Yeah. You get them as they are. Right. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. No, that's, that's super neat. Um, I, I think it's been really fantastic to just learn uh, a whole lot more about innovation. Again, I think particularly innovation sort of, uh, you know, in, in, you know, a unique industry, right? Um, again, I, I look at it at the end of the day, um, obviously, uh, so much of what you do is, is people-centric, right? So I think that really is uh, just, just neat to see how innovation takes place uh, when it relates to, you know, patients and their care and stuff that really is, like, deeply personal, so... Um, I know I definitely enjoyed, you know, listening to all the different things you had to say today. And uh, yeah, it's been uh, just just really neat. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's been great to sit down with you three. <laughs> yep. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming in. Take yeah, care, guys. thank you.